I keep preaching the gospel of expression to my students, I, I keep preaching to them that the reason that we play music is to express life's, uh, what it means to be a human being and alive, uh, what, what human emotions uh, we have, and it's in the music. Hi, I'm Ben Capolo, and welcome to All Keyed Up, Creative Conversations for Today's Piano Teachers. Thanks so much for listening. Today, I will be speaking with Marvin Blickenstaff. Marvin Blickenstaff is known among piano teachers throughout the country for his teaching, lecturing, performing, and publishing. Currently, he maintains a private studio in the Philadelphia area and teaches at the New School for Music Study in Princeton. Blickenstaff is the former board president of the Francis Clark Center for Keyboard Pedagogy and is on the executive planning committee of the National Conference on Keyboard Pedagogy. In 2007, the online journal Piano Pedagogy Forum published tributes to Blickenstaff honoring his contribution to piano teaching in America. Also in 2007, he was named Fellow of the Royal Conservatory of Music in Toronto. He was honored in 2009 with MTNA's highest honor, the MTNA Achievement Award, and was selected in 2013 by the National Conference on Keyboard Pedagogy for its Lifetime Achievement Award. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Marvin Blickenstaff, thank you so much for joining today. My pleasure. I really regard this as an honor. Oh, I'm sure you, I sure you the honor is mine. Um, first, I would like to talk about what happens prior to a lesson with you. I'm interested in whether, first of all, whether you lesson plan, and if you do, in what level of detail, and regardless of whether you lesson plan, once you start a lesson with a student and you're thinking in your head of how that lesson is going to go, how much of that is a general sequence that you kind of do to all of your students, which you've developed over the years, and how much of it is dependent on the particular student's learning style and interests? Well, Ben, I would, I would say kind of all of the above. Okay. Um, there, there's no question but what there is lesson planning going on. Mm-hmm. Um, all the time, it, it's almost, my lesson plan almost begins at the end of the previous lesson. Okay. And I, I'm thinking, out what do we need to do next week and what, how will we follow up, et cetera. But I actually prepare an assignment for my students before the lesson. I don't do that in the lesson. It's done before the lesson. I can make amendments uh, during the lesson. But when a student comes in for the lesson, there is a printout, a computerized printout of their uh, assignment for the coming week. Mm. Well, that obviously means that there is some lesson planning going on in my mind as I formulate that. I would I would suggest that the um, that the particulars of the lesson plan actually are more precise with the youngest students as as opposed to the older students. Yes, yeah, that makes sense. When I have a, a, a first year student. Uh, Virtually every little part of our lesson is pre-planned. I know I'm going to do this, and and then we'll follow up with that. We get down on the floor, and we make skips and steps, and mm-hmm. then we march around, and, think, and that is all pre-planned. Mm-hmm. Uh, another thing that is uh, traditional, we may get into this later in the, in the interview, but basically all of my lessons start with technique, so some kind of warm-ups. Mm-hmm. 
all of my lessons start with warm-ups. And I do that very purposely, Ben, because I want them to use that as a model for how they practice at home. Mm. And you don't just sit down and, and start playing your pieces, you know, you warm up. And if I model that week after week after week in the lessons, I think there's a tendency for them to do that at home. Mm. And I, I, I really feel that that's quite successful because a lot of my students, they'll, they'll come into the, the lesson, they'll sit at the piano, and without my suggesting anything, they start doing their warm-ups. That's a great impetus on their yeah. part. I do want to talk a little bit about these technical exercises. You do, as you said, do these technical exercises at the beginning of every lesson, kind of regardless of student. And um, these include, for instance, transposing Hannon exercises to the other keys, uh, playing diatonic triads while rhythmically chanting the number and quality of the triad out loud. There's an exercise, I believe, that you learned from Jane Allen to work on finger strength and independence. So I'm interested in when you're deciding at the beginning of the lesson, which technical exercise to work on with the student in question, kind of going back to my question before, how much of that is every student I take through this series of technical exercises and how much of it is, well, I've noticed this student has a tendency to struggle with X and so they need to do this technical exercise. I I appreciate the question very much. The, The sequence virtually with every student, uh, uh, right from the little babies who start uh, in, in their first year. The sequence starts with stretches and then goes to rotations and then goes to specific skills like scales and arpeggios and chords. Um, I, ben, I was, uh, uh, years ago, I was directing a workshop at, at Goshen College in, in Indiana, and we had as a guest speaker a hand surgeon. Oh, I, I wanted I wanted the teachers to hear somebody who really was a hand expert talk about the physiology of the hand, uh, things that that we piano teachers don't know too much about. And uh, so he showed us almost gruesome uh, slides of uh, uh, the hand that was flayed uh, uh, with the skin away, you know, and you saw the muscles and the tendons. And he explained very uh, particularly about why the fourth finger is a difficult finger to play because of the tendon connections on either side of the fourth finger to the third and the fifth, et cetera, et cetera. So those were all very valuable things. At the end of the session, he asked for questions. And uh, one teacher raised her hand and she said, "Uh, would you talk to us a little bit about warm-ups? And he said, said, thank you so much for that question. He said, "It's, it's really a very important thing. He said, actually, you could define warm-ups as stimulating circulation. Hmm. Warm-ups are, they exist for the purpose of stimulating circulation. We come to the piano and and we are not warmed up because the, the blood is not necessarily stimulated to flow through our, our fingertips. And he said, actually, it's very important for you to do stretching exercises Okay. Before you start your uh, your your playing of, of the repertoire, because by definition, stretching stimulates circulation. Wow. So from the very beginning, of my with my very first lesson, I have the little babies doing what we call stretch, grab, stretch, oh, grab, wow. stretch, grab. They they stretch their fingers as far from one another as they can, and then they relax by by grabbing around the thumb. 
stretch, grab. And that truly does stimulate the circulation. Uh, my older students put their fingers out at the end of a white key, uh, one finger, and then they bob up and down one, two, three, four, and they relax and they put another finger out on the key and go one, two, three, four. Oh, and that also stimulates circulation in the way you're describing. Really stretch the webbing between the fingers, and that stimulates the circulation. Yeah. That's so interesting to say that part of the goal of technical exercises is not just to prepare them for specific playing challenges that will come up in their pieces, but there's actually an anatomical kind of yeah, biological reason exactly. behind these warm-ups, which is to simulate circulation. And that's why you start with stretching, regardless of who the student is, because we all have a similar anatomy, like what the hand yeah, exactly. that you're talking about was describing. The next thing, the next thing that we do, I, I said stretches and rotations. I really feel that uh, the aspect of rotations, just rocking the hand back and forth, is probably the most undertaught technical yeah. uh, gesture uh, in, in traditional piano training. Yeah, I've seen you talk about that a lot to help with phrasing. Yeah, well, and, and Alberti basses and things like mm -hmm. that, yeah. And, and basically, I tell my students that, that actually every time the, the music changes direction from high back to low and high back to low, that is not, you don't play that with your fingers, you play that with your hand. Mm -hmm. And so we do an exercise where they go... <laughs> Yeah, five, one, four, one, three, one, two. Yeah, um, if you try to play that with fingers only and don't think about the motion of the whole hand, forget right. it. There's no way the 16th notes will be even. But it's really interesting. I have to remind my students all the time that that is a hand exercise, yeah. not a finger right. exercise. Right. Okay. So we do that. Now, the little babies, of course, they're not prepared to play major, minor, diminished, uh, 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 five finger patterns like that. And so they start out and actually this feeds right into their way that they start to read. But they go, rock the hand to play the skips. And then they'll do another set of skipping fingers like two, four, rock the hand. And they learn that when you yeah, go back rock. and forth, you yeah. rock the hand. And then we um, we fill that in a little further or, or amplify that a little further by going rock the hand to play the skips. Fingers play the steps. So we are actually differentiating the kind of technique when you go back and forth on a, on a rocking gesture and when you go straight up and down in your hand. Rock the hand to play the skips fingers play the steps. I had an interview on this podcast with Arielle Weiss, who's an Alexander technique specialist, and she talked a lot about the rotation you're describing, how important it is when we play to be rotating both within our hands and also when we're going from low notes on the piano to high notes to thinking of it as a torso rotation. So both on the macro and micro level, so much of piano take technique is about yeah. rotation. And I think that a lot of your yeah. exercises target that. Yeah. I do want to switch gears now and talk about a different element of piano teaching that I'm always thinking about in my lessons, which is teaching students to play with rhythmic accuracy. And in many oh. of your lessons, you ask students to, quote, prove the rhythm, end quote. Can you explain what this phrase means and how this strategy Absolutely. relates more broadly to your thinking regarding teaching rhythms? Uh, prove the rhythm is a phrase that I use with my students to uh, encourage them to count aloud. Uh, a, a student can play 
and and they may think that they are playing the right rhythm, but if they don't count uh, out loud, they're not really proving that they're playing the right rhythm. And uh, another aspect of proving the rhythm is that we tap and count. We close the key cover, and 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 they they tap the right hand uh, notes with the right hand, and the left hand, uh, left notes with the left hand. But they've got to count out loud. Right. And I'll tell them, no, if, if I cannot hear you count out loud, you're really not proving that you really are in charge of the rhythm or that you know the rhythm. So proving the rhythm is tantamount to saying you are going to count out right. loud. One struggle that I've had um, when trying to do that in my studio, I'm interested if you have any advice, is I ask the students to play while counting out loud. And they do count out loud and they count the numbers correctly, but they don't count the numbers with a steady pulse. They pause oh. before they say the next number. Oh. What would you do in okay. a situation like that? Oh, quit playing, close the piano up, and yeah, tap. as you were saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I think that that uh, that will that will help that a lot. Mm -hmm. And and if that doesn't work, uh, uh, you know, instilling a sense of ongoing beat in a student is not an easy yeah. thing. Uh, uh, so. I have different rhythmic instruments in my studio. Uh, we have tambourines and I have some drums and, and you get up. Really isolate rhythm. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And don't think that you're wasting time at all when you, when you are trying to reinforce the feeling of a steady beat. Uh, uh, a student must have a, a strong sense of a steady beat and getting up and moving around we go march, 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 and we tap the drum and we clap uh, the, the rhythmic instrument and this kind yeah. of thing. I'm planning on doing an upcoming episode about Dalcro's Eurythmics, which gets a lot into a lot of what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Switching gears from rhythm is to uh, note reading. Uh, you advocate learning note reading by paying attention to shapes and intervals, uh, maybe as opposed to some strategies such as mnemonic devices that isolate one note at a time and don't talk about the relationship between the notes. And I saw you interestingly compare this to how you would read a magazine in the sense that you don't read one word at a time. You think about the full meaning of the sentence. Can you elaborate on structuring a note reading curriculum that places intervals and shapes at the forefront and talk about how that plays out in the very first few lessons and how you build on that as the student progresses? Uh, uh, thanks for the question, because I think it's really, really very important. I think the success of, of teaching note reading in, in the early stages goes back to whether or not we isolate the name of a single note or whether we help the students see a shape of one note going to the next. Um, I, uh, and I would say that the most basic shapes that we work with with our with our students are skips and steps. A uh, skip is a third, and a step is a second. And those words can can be uh, uh, used back and forth. Uh, students easily understand that that skips are thirds and and steps are seconds. Um, one of the secrets I think of of good instruction is that one starts with an exaggerated concept and then and then you refine it. So when I'm teaching skips and steps to my students, we're not at the piano, but we're down on the floor. I'll give the students a, a big poster board uh, uh, limited staff with about three plastic lines on, on it. And then we have black note heads 
that fit very nicely in a space mm -hmm. between those lines. And we spend time making space notes and line notes. And we learn that if you go from one space note to a next space note, you're skipping over a line. So a space to a space is a skip. And if you go from a line to a line, that's a skip. Mm -hmm. But if you go to from a line to the very next space, that's a step. And so we're working on skips and steps. And I'll uh, give the student three or four note heads. And they can, uh, I'll say, uh, make all your notes line notes, you know. And then we talk about step uh, skips. Uh, and they can even come to the piano and play what they have notated on the floor because they see those skips. And it doesn't matter what notes they're playing on the piano. It matters that they skip a white key. Mm -hmm. And the same way with steps. Mm -hmm. And so very early in a student's uh, instruction, they are learning to read by shape. No note names and involved at all. And I just, I find that so helpful. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I, I feel like the priorities are in order. They're seeing a shape and they're applying that shape to any place on, on, on the keyboard. Mm -hmm. And it's really interesting how then they become really quite fluent with reading of notes on a, on a staff in, in their pieces. Then the next step is to uh, identify certain landmark notes on the grand staff. Uh, and in Music Pathways, we thought, well, it's so hard for students to start in the middle and then ease their way out because the further you go out on this on the staff, the harder it is for them to deal with that. And so we thought, well, why not start way out on the extremes and fill it in? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And so our first landmark notes are high C, oh. ledger line, two lines of, of, above the staff, and low C, two ledger lines below the staff. Oh, that's interesting. And the cases that I've seen Landmark taught before, at least stereotypically, what I've seen is you start out with left hand, a base F, then middle C, and then this G, a fifth above that. That's interesting to start yeah. at the extremes and go in. We start way out with high C and low C, and then fill it in uh, with the other C's and eventually uh, do uh, treble G and, and, and base F. But it's a, they just turn out to be wonderful readers. Uh, and I think part of the secret of that is that they understand how to get from one note to another because of, of skips and steps, you know. And then they have a limited number of landmark notes. Uh, but uh, the the magic of that is that you play, uh, let's say, the A below middle C, you know, uh, and, and you say, well, now, what is the name of that note? And I, I, I check my students lot, uh, every, every lesson. We do a lot of note naming. And the official uh, way to name that note is middle C down a skip A, or or treble G up a, up a up a skip B, a treble C up a skip E, or treble C up a step B, high C up a skip E. You know, I've sometimes seen uh, the interval method taught in a way that I think is not as good as that, where they'll do mnemonic devices for the very first note of the phrase, and then from there do the intervals. But in your way of doing it, even figuring out the first note is done with intervals, um, as you say, yeah. by saying as a skip below C. Yeah. I also admire earlier in this interview, you were talking about how your technical exercises involve students playing steps and skips and saying out loud that they're playing skips and steps. I like that because that ties to your approach to note reading. So you're integrating the technical exercises with the note reading and it keeps everything yeah. kind of consistent. 
Um, so yeah. I'd like to talk about now when you're using these techniques and you're actually teaching a new piece in real time. A lot of your teaching involves getting students to see how ideas are repeated or altered over the course of a piece. And in Music Pathways, you write about having students circle portions of the piece that are motivically related. And interestingly, I recently did an interview with pianist Mark Antonio Broni on teaching Bach, and he also talked about strategies like this for students to see passages that are motivically consistent. Um, but I also know that a lot of your teaching of new pieces involves sight reading. So what I'd like to know is when you're teaching a new piece, do you tend to start from measure one and work chronologically, or is it more of a bird's eye view approach where you kind of jump around places that are motivically related or isolate the most challenging spots? That's a very good question, Ben. Thank you. Um, I, I, I think one aspect of sight reading is to be able to look at a piece and without hearing it or without playing it, uh, analyze the form. Okay. And so a lot of times uh, I'll start with a new piece and the student and I will look at, at this piece and I'll say, can you, can you find the B section? And, and, and they'll point to it abs absolutely accurately because the B section is where you have 16th notes, you know, or something like that, or the, or the rhythm changes, or the, uh, uh, the location on the keyboard changes. And so we start out uh, with, with a new piece, a lot of times, analyzing the form. Mm -hmm. And I think that's very important for students to be able to see form, uh, and then they'll hear the form. Uh, uh, they, they practice uh, with that in mind. Uh, and isn't that actually one of the guidelines to a good interpretation that you project mm -hmm. the form to the listener? Uh, isn't it true that, that basically all of our pieces have two guiding principles involved, and that is unity and contrast? Mm. The, the composer writes things that help the piece hold together, and the composer also provides things that, that uh, provide contrast and, and interest. I want my students to see that right away in, in their pieces. So one of the things that we do with new pieces is to look and see if we can determine the form. Uh, and and it depends upon the piece, but many times I'll, I'll have the student jump right to what I regard as the most difficult part of the piece. And we'll talk about how will you practice this? And usually it starts out with rhythm. That, that you that you have to analyze the rhythm and so they tap that and they count that uh, and they get the rhythm going and then and then they can read it I am interested in keeping in touch um, all the time with my students sight reading ability and one of the ways that I do that is that we do sight read new pieces uh, if if I find it uh, helpful for the student uh, that give the student confidence with the new piece, we may do some sight reading of hands separate. But I, my main interest is is that they can sight read hands together. We go slowly. We talk about the key. I'll have them look over uh, any uh, surprising accidentals uh, or or rhythms that they need, and we'll isolate rhythms. And as I said, we're, we'll tap and count them out. You know. Uh, and so that they can verbalize the rhythm. So they get, they really get very proficient with their reading. And part of that is because that's how we start our, our new pieces. I really admire that you talk about form from the get-go because it seems like that's a macro level of 
your approach to teaching note reading in general and that you're always interested in the shape of the piece, the relationship of the notes. And so talking about the form from the get-go before sight reading yeah. establishes a kind of large-scale architecture so the student isn't getting bogged down into this note, then this note, then this note, then this note. We're always looking at the bigger picture. Well, I think also, Ben, um, my interest in right from the very beginning about form goes to what we're ultimately aiming for, and that is effective interpretation yeah. of the piece. Yeah. And if, so if we get started out with the idea that this piece has a section that that's, exists solely to provide contrast in the piece, we're, we're way ahead in, in our interpretation of the piece. Mm. Yeah, I want to uh, jump off of this idea of interpretation of the piece, because one of the areas of teaching that you're most known for is the large emphasis you place on interpretation and also emotional expression, even in the most beginning stages of learning a piece and even for the youngest students. Um, in my case, I teach a little bit of voice in addition to piano, and I'm always surprised at how much more instinctually my voice students tend to grapple with the emotions of their songs than my piano students do with their pieces. How do you get your students to appreciate the emotional power of the music they perform and see that these expressive elements such as dynamics and phrasing are not just kind of commands to be mindlessly, you know, obeyed, yeah. but are actually promptings towards true emotional expression? Well, thank you. Uh, great question. Um, and I'm not sure that I'm always successful. But one of the things that we do right from the get-go is to talk about the title of the piece. Oh, that's interesting. Why did the composer put this title on the, on the piece? Mm -hmm. And, and uh, if you were going to write a piece with this title, what kind of sounds would you make? Mm -hmm. And then we investigate the kinds of sounds that the composer used for, for this piece. Mm -hmm. But uh, I try to get my students very involved right from the very beginning with the exp uh, with the expression of the the composer's title uh, uh if it's an evening piece or if it's a vigorous uh, physical activity kind of uh, piece uh we talk about that and talk about those sounds mm -hmm. um so that's one of the places where the uh, uh the emotion gets started right right from the very beginning and then uh, we'll talk about dynamics uh, and uh, and examine the composer's use of the dynamics. Why did he write piano here? What kind of sound do you need to make so that it expresses the title of the piece or the composer's intent right here? Yeah. And so I try to get the student involved from the very, very beginning with interpreting the composer's intent. Uh, and I, I keep preaching the gospel of expression yeah. to my students. I, I keep preaching to them that the reason that we play music is to express life's, uh, what it means to be a human being and alive, uh, what, what human emotions uh, we have, and it's in the music. Um, uh, when I when I taught piano pedagogy, uh, one of the first things that we would do in our very first class uh, is to try to define music. We're 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 in a piano pedagogy class. We're going to teach musical principles to our little little kids. Uh, what is music? And the and the pedagogy students would uh, grapple over a, a definition of music. Uh, 
most of the time, with a little bit of guidance on my part, they would come up with a definition. It would vary from year to year, but it went something like uh, music is the expression of the total human experience in organized sound. Yeah. And the word organized was very purposely put in there because it takes a composer to organize the sound and, and make it something other than just random. Okay. Music is the expression of the total human experience. You know, the, the depths of our sorrows, you know, the, the heights of our joy, uh, the total human loss and, uh, uh, and as I say, joy and, and uh, celebration. Music is the expression of the total human experience through organized sound. That's very powerful. Um, and I really like what you were saying earlier about uh, using the title as sort of a launching off point to discuss the emotional aspect of a piece. One yeah. thing that I've tried a little in my studio that I've found fun is before the student plays any notes, read them the title and then ask some guiding questions like, how do you think a piece like this would sound and have them do an improvise improvisation activity and yeah. then compare what they improvise to what this composer wrote? Yeah. Um, yeah. I want to uh, move a bit to now talking about score study. Your approach is very rigorous, um, and you mentioned that you incorporate that in every lesson to make sure the students understand the music that they're playing. But when I've watched uh, videos of you teaching, you never just analyze the pieces in front of your students while they kind of sit in silence and listen to you lecture. I mean, you are very good at keeping score studies student-centered and actively engaging students as they discover the exciting elements of the piece themselves. Can you talk about some of your strategies for guiding students towards exploring pieces as opposed to kind of spoon feeding them with an analysis? Um, one of the things uh, I try to uh, keep in my own mind uh, and try to uh, have the student analyze, uh, we talk about high points. What is the loudest moment of the piece? You know, what, what harmony or what chord do you find to be the most effective? Uh, Maybe it's the most surprising or the most be beautiful. So we talk about uh, special moments in the piece. Uh, uh, and that doesn't necessarily uh, help us identify the development section of a sonatina or but something it's a great like starting that. Point. But, but, but what it does is, is keep the student's mind saying, oh, I'm going here because uh, the, the high point of the piece, the most intense point of the piece is two measures away. I've got to build up and crescendo and crescendo. So they really constantly have sort of a shape of the piece in their mind. Yeah, That's great. Well, I'm really noticing a lot today that so much of the elements of, of piano pedagogy you have thought through so thoroughly and have so many ideas. So what I'm interested in is... You know, it's safe to say that you're among one of the most well-reputed piano teachers and at such a accomplished stage in your career. I'm interested in if you feel that nowadays your teaching approach is still changing. And are, are there any specific areas in which you feel that you continue to experiment? And, and in general, how do you stay kind of open-minded and continuing learning even when you're at a stage when your teaching successes so far have been so monumental? Well... I will have to confess that I don't regard myself as a very good teacher. What? I don't think any one of our listeners would agree with that. <laughs> I, think, I think I still have so much to learn. Uh, and I uh, basically, every lesson, hmm. I, I think, oh, I could have done this better, wow. or I could have done that better. Uh, 
sometimes I, I, we, we do a high five with, with a student when there's some really successful sight reading or they can analyze chords and harmonies and things like that. But I just feel like I've, I've, I've got a long way to grow before I can really say you're, you're a good wow. teacher. Uh, planning is, is a, a real challenge for me to, to do long range planning for my students. Uh, uh, I, I think if there's any, any sort of positive part of my teach, I think I can coach a piece to a good performance. I think I know technical routines that, that can help them, uh, accomplish, uh, good technique in their pieces and things. Uh, but I, there, there are lots of things about my teaching that I'm not very proud of. Wow. Uh, <laughs> and I, I, I think I should be doing better, a better job. I'm amazed by that level of humility. It sort of reminds me of what I've read about Brahms, how he would, even in his late stages of careers, always be yeah. insecure about his pieces. He would burn a lot of them, even when he wrote these amazing pieces and was such a towering, yeah, exactly. successful figure. Um, before we go, can you give our listeners a sense of what you're up to now and what they can do if they'd like to learn more about you? Oh, <laughs> I, I think that's not a very interesting topic. <laughs> you don't need to learn more about me. I disagree. <laughs> I would mention that for years, uh, uh, let me back up a, a little bit further. I've, I've done workshops all over the country and basically all around the world. Um, and um, so many times after a workshop, a teacher would come up and say, well, that was really interesting. I, I, I learned something. Uh, where can we read more about that? And I, I, I've thought, I really should write up some of this stuff. And, and leave it as sort of a piano, a legacy for piano teachers. And so for the last several years, I have been writing a book, oh. uh, a book for piano teachers. Oh, and it, it's, it's nearing completion. I'm about done. I want it now. <laughs> okay. yeah, you know. uh, so it's going to be several hundred pages. And wow. I have an editor, a wonderful editor at the university of Georgia, a good friend, uh, and we're working on on bringing it to conclusion, uh, and I'm I'm looking forward to that. Uh, um, I I I hope that it will be of help to t teachers. I've spent my life actually this year. I'm celebrating 60 years of piano that teaching. That is unbelievable. That's I've so I've, I've spent 60 years of my life uh, teaching the piano, about 80 years of my life playing the piano, and uh, from all of that investment, obviously, you have learned something and you may have something to share. Uh, my workshops have been somewhat successful. And, and so I've, I've tried to write up a number of my ideas about teaching for piano teachers to read. So that's sort of where I am in my career at this point. Uh, obviously, I'm, I, I have actually no idea when I'm going to quit teaching because I I have energy and I, I have desire and I love the kids. And so I'll, until somebody comes along and says, man, you're over the hill. You got, you better quit soon. <laughs> I read uh, Elliot Carter wrote his final symphony when he was 103. So it, you, know, you set your own oh, time. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know that. Um, well, I have to say before we go, and just not just preparing for this interview, but in general, over the years, I have learned so much by 
uh, about teaching piano by reading about you, watching videos about you, and I'm really honored that you were willing to take some time out of your clearly busy schedule to speak with me today. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's my pleasure, Ben. Nice to meet you. Thank you very much for having me. You too. And thanks to all of you for tuning in to All Keyed Up. I'll see you next time.